We all come into worship on the Lord's day and we're visiting and laughing, sharing, greeting friends, making new friends, but we come together. I don't know about you, but it's our choir and musicians who prepare me for the truth of God to penetrate my life. Thank you. In college, I was taking a course in Russian history, and I'm sure that I read the Communist Manifesto, became acquainted with words like bourgeoisie, but I don't remember it. But somebody gave me, about a couple of months ago, two copies of that little pamphlet that was written by Marx and Engels. And I picked it up and I knew the thesis of communism from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. And the thesis sounds utopian and wonderful. The only problem is it has never, never worked when it's been tried in history. In fact, you could easily build a case conservatively that over a hundred million people have lost their lives and been slaughtered at the foot of that atheistic view of life. When I read it, I was thumbing it, but in the early pages I encountered something that was absolutely breathtaking. It said simply that for there to be a communistic society, this pseudo-utopianism, you had to first of all totally obliterate and destroy the family. First and foremost, get rid of any semblance, any sign of the family. We would call it the nuclear family. You know why it's called nuclear? It's not for the energy. We connect the word nuclear with that. It is the nucleus, nuclear of all civilization, the family. And these revolutionaries knew as long as the family was functioning and the family was the center of our society and of our lives. That would be a foundation upon which could not be destroyed. The family. And then it hit me, you know, God established three institutions. We've talked about that. The family first, civil government second, and the church third. So it seemed only natural that if you want to destroy a culture, you destroy the first institution God brought into being. Began with marriage. God performed the ceremony, remember, Adam and Eve. And we said over and over again, how does a marriage function? Leave, cleave, one flesh, no shame. And before the infamous 
bite was taken from the apple on the tree, if it were an apple, I think it was, already you see the freedom of choice beginning to deteriorate the four principles of marriage. Leave. In other words, leave all things, all others, all other relationships. Evidently, when Eve needed Adam more than any other time, when the serpent, when Satan came, Adam had somehow left and was doing other things. Cleave, hold on to one another. Evidently, they were not holding on to one another. Already, the pre-sin activity, one flesh, one flesh. They were not one, they were acting independently and when Eve had eaten the apple, all of a sudden she gave it to Adam and Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent and both of them blamed God. You see, already there was a disintegration of the family which was marriage at the core of it. So here is Satan attacking the family, marriage, through this dos capita. And then we see all the rest of it coming down through the Communist Manifesto. And now we see Satan's the first attack. And all of his agenda was on marriage and the family. And then I awakened and said, we're studying wokeism, which is not just an ideology, it's become a religion. Why, if you don't get in with the program, look at every institution in America, and for that matter, almost around the world today, they are wall growing and understanding of what it means to be woke. And if you're not woke, I can tell you, you in all probability in different relationships, you'll be canceled. Yeah, you'll be canceled. By the way, they wanted to cancel Jesus, remember? And they did cancel him. All the institution of that time and that day said, crucify him. So they canceled him and they nailed him to a X mark of cancelization. And Satan said, amen. By the way, demonic forces use our language, you know, to say amen, so let it be. Jesus had been canceled, but what happened to that cancellation? There was a resurrection. So, so, we come to this point when all of a sudden you see the attack on the family and the attack on the family, and you take all the operative, pregnant words in wokeism and see how directly or indirectly they affect marriage and they affect the family. Look at some of these words. The woke vocabulary. Tradition, husband and wife, oh, no, 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 woke, they're partners. And you ask people, well, tell me about your wife. Well, let me tell you about my partner I've been living with, so forth. Have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah, that's woke language. Mother, gestational part person. Huh. Father, non-gestational person. Hmm. Those are hard to define. The most recent nominee for the Supreme Court couldn't tell you the difference of a woman anyway. <laughs> Gender, 
68 different varieties of human expression. By the way, I had someone look that up. This is true. Monday this week, my researcher looked it up and said they're 68. She called me back on Thursday and said, four new ones have been added. I can't make that up. And I asked her, what are these four new expressions of sexuality? She said, they haven't given names to them yet. <laughs> bachelor, bachelorette, oh no, bachelor X. Bride or groom forbidden, marrier. Flower girl, flower pal, bravo bouquet, oh no, they've been totally renamed in our woke culture. And I've got a question for all of those who are moving around in this area. Many of them are in high elective office. Many of them have degree after degree after degree. My question for these is simply this, and I say this not cynically or sarcastically, but I say it with most sincerity. How high do you have to get in our society? And how much education do you have to have before you lose all common sense? <laughs> so we come to this point, we ask the question, does the word of God have any instruction for us? Open your Bibles to Matthew, chapter number seven, and you couldn't have a better instruction for all of us than the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 24, following, Jesus said, in light of what he's been teaching, and you can read all the chapters, one, two, three, four, five, six before this, and say, wow, wow. He says, in light of what I've been teaching, who hears these words of mine and acts on them, let me tell you something. You can sit in church every day, every moment, go to every Bible study class, you can read your scripture, you can do everything in the world, and hear, hear, hear. Jesus says we can't just to hear, we have to act. Hello, shocking. I thought I had done all I needed to do is just to hear. You see, we're so confused even in the church of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been to a Bible study class and somebody reads a scripture and they ask, well, what do you think about that? Well, what do you think about that? By the way, I'll deal with this soon, that is, Postmodernism interpretation, and it is deadly because everybody has their own opinion. How do you teach the Bible? You take a verse, you understand it in context of what it means at that time and that place and that situation, and then you hear and you act and see what that means. Do that before that, and you're out in Never Never Land. What do you think about that? No, no, no. Bible verses aren't just up for grabs. Make them mean anything you want them to mean. Just spin them any way you like them. No, 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 not the truth of God. Jesus says right in the beginning, he said, if you hear, that's good. 
But you better act. Hearing without acting is nothing. It amounts to nothing. So he says, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man, a wise person, who built his house on rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house. Let me tell you something, folks. I like that word translated here, slammed. And every marriage, every family, everybody knows about what it means to be slammed against. Slammed against. Slammed against the house, and yet does not fail for it had been founded on the rock. Ooh, a marriage, a family that stands. The contrast. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, they just hear, will be like a fool, a foolish man, a foolish person who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the ones blew and slammed against the house the same thing happened to the family on the sand, the family on the rock. But look at the difference. And it fell. And great was the fall of that family that was built on sand. Right, let's make this personal, folks. Is your marriage, your life, single or married or not, is it built on sand? We're talking about the family. Let me tell you what a, a marriage, a family built on sand, a marriage built on sand starts usually with the couples being unequally yoked together. What in the world does that mean? It means the husband believes one thing about this, the wife believes something else about this. It means one is a Christian, one is not a Christian. It means they're going in opposite directions. They haven't agreed. How any marriage can stand when they're reading different rule books and different principles, I don't know. But a lot of times we fall in love on the basis of, we call it love, but it's probably more lust. I'm not against chemistry in relationship. Sure, that's a part. But marriages that are two individuals living by different rule books, it's like playing tennis. One person gets two points every time they make a point, and the other one gets one, and the lines are different, and the rules are different, and guess what? That's not gonna be any fun. You take anything we do, and one side is playing by one book, another side playing by another book, and of all things in marriage, the most intimate and sacred of relationships. So the unequal yoke. And in the unequal yoke, and by the way, I have to say this all the time. You didn't mention this. You didn't get, well, just stay with us. We're in general principles. I hope that you will hear and act and apply. And then they're unequally yoked, and then what happens? So many, many times there's adultery. So many, many, many pornea, sexual immorality. There's adultery, and then the other reason for divorce, given the Bible, is desertion. And boy, that's interpreted far and wide. A lot of marriages stay together in form, but they really have deserted from one another, haven't they? 
You do your thing, I do my thing. Oh, we meet once in a while. So there are the two grounds, and really you see that in so many marriages. Because they were unequally yoked, different principles going in, and now they get in, and here is adultery, and here is desertion, not just leaving, but deserted and working together, teaming together. And then all of a sudden, there's a divorce. What is divorce, ladies and gentlemen? I'll tell you exactly what it is. When you get married and I get married, two become one. And divorce is when that marriage commits suicide. Boy, that's hard. No, that is biblical truth. So now that one that you became has self-imploded and suicide is taking place. Let me say over here, oh, that judgmental preacher. No, I'm just teaching biblical principles. There's forgiveness and grace and the second chance. And I know about half of us here have gone through a divorce. I understand that. I'm not uh, an ostrich over there, I assure you. So here's what happens. Suicide takes place. And then sometimes people get married again, feeling they have biblical grounds, and many times they do, but they don't change. They go in with the same kind of twisted view of life and marriage and family. And it happens again. And it happens again. And it's always the other person's fault. Have you noticed? Tragedy. The attack is on the family. And when this happens, you know what the devil says? Amen. Yeah, one of our words, so let it be. I've won. And then the product of this tragedy are children. Children. Oh, here are children. What happens to children? Usually they become a ping pong ball because the husband, the daddy, and the mother, they want to make sure the children understand that I'm right, she's right, he's right, and they so many times try to overspoil and do and love those little children who've gone through the divorce because I want you to know your daddy loves you more than your mother loves you and you beat the children up. What happens to the children? They have lost the model, the pattern of what God intends for family and how children ought to be brought up. They've lost it. The children are out there in Never Never Land and they're looking for authority and principle and understanding. And usually mom and dad in divorce, they don't, they don't want to discipline very much. Or she'll side with him or he'll side with her. Right? I'm telling you just the way it is, ladies and gentlemen. So the children then are looking for some course. And where do they go? Usually they go in the schools of education, right? They go in the classroom and they're looking for a father, a mother, a, a mentor, somebody who cares, somebody who'll listen, somebody even who'll discipline. And then in the schools, we submit ourselves to them. You go to a public school today in our city, in our counties, or in our America, and about, I don't know what percentage, an overwhelming percentage of them, they'll be taught by children who have had to respond 
to the woke agenda. They even have teachers at large who go through to teach the teachers how to teach wokeness to the children without mom and dad ever finding out. Oh yes, they're all over the country. They're specialists. And then our children are there, they're looking for voices. And I re re recently heard about a teacher, I think it was in Dallas in the sixth grade. She discovered 90% of her children in the sixth grade could not read simple sentences with any semblance of understanding. She went to the principal or head of school, then to the school board and told them. And they took a survey and sure enough, only about 80% of them could read with any semblance of understanding. And the school board said, don't you tell anybody, don't you do anything. Two years of homeschooling, what a price. Just promote them right up. Therefore, they can't read with understanding, so they have to listen and be indoctrinated in wokeism in the classroom. Now, if a couple is prosperous enough to send your son or daughter to an independent private school, many, many times with great sacrifice, if they attend a school that is approved by the National Association of Independent Schools, and by the way, I would say most of the prestigious schools in this city are approved by this particular group and get their accreditation there. If your son or daughter happens to be there, this is true across America, by the way, when they go in, they sign something called a certificate of cooperation. Follow me. And when a mom or dad signs this, it simply says that the mom or dad will not try to interject what they believe or what they think in the educational process. Lord, mom and dad, you stay out of this when you take your child or your child gets up here eight o'clock in the morning, they stay to three or four o'clock in the afternoon, they belong to us and don't you get involved in that. If you do, says this statement up front, your child can be dismissed by the board and none of your money will be refunded. Welcome to Russia. That's where we are. And when you build your family on sand, when the wind, the rains, when all of this is flung against your family, God says that family will not stand. And many of us could give testimony to that. Many of us could say, I understand it. Many of us would say, in fact, that's where I am. I get that. But then Jesus goes on to say, but if you build your family on rock, on rock, where does that phrase come from? Caesarea Philippi. Jesus took the apostles out way up at the headwaters of the Jordan River. I've been there. Beautiful spot, pristine. And of the headwaters, Jesus sat down with his apostles. He began to teach them, preparing them for the storm and the winds and the rains and all the first century wokeism they would have to deal with. And finally he asked, well, well guys, uh, 
Who do people say that I am? And oh, you get the public opinion, this, that, the other. He said, who do you say that I am? Oh, oh, wait a minute. And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one the Old Testament has promised. You are God in human flesh, fulfilling all prophecy to instruct us and give us the way of salvation now and salvation forever. You are the Messiah. How did Jesus respond? He said, Peter, flesh and blood didn't tell you this. You didn't come through it by logic. The Holy Spirit led you to say this. And on Peter's profession of faith, not on Peter, we're not part of the Catholic Church, on your profession of faith, said Jesus, I will build my church, my body of activity in the world, my church, and he says the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But the church has to be the church. You say, well, what's happening in our society? Man, uh, here, here you have, I've already talked about before where the gates of hell are located. Don't forget it. There's the gates of hell in front of our educational system. There's the gates of hell before our corporate structure. There's the gates of hell before the media. There's the gates of hell wherever you turn. It says the church will not provide. In other words, the gates of hell can't keep the church out. The problem is the church has been so dead and complacent, they haven't even tried to get in. You and the church can be complicit in all of this. We just join up. <laughs> I'm just part of it. Now, you know, I don't want to, I want to go against the streams of history. What a stupid statement. Well, I'm just complicit. A lot of churches, a lot of people are complicit. Oh, yeah, I want to get with the program. I want to get with the program. And a lot are, are complacent. <laughs> Man, I, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to get in an argument. I, I don't want to stir up any problems. I'm going to just keep complacent. And, and we take the same advice that Sam Rayburn gave to John Kennedy when he went in the House. Mr. Kennedy asked, well, what can I do up here in Congress? And Rayburn said, well, the way you get along, you go along. Washingtonian philosophy that is deadly then and deadly today. So, you're either complicit, you've joined in, or you're complacent, or you're courageous. Are you tired of stooping, folks? If there's ever a time in history, it is a time for God's people to stand now. church built, a family built on sand will not survive when the storms come. But built on that profession of faith in Jesus Christ, 
And by the way, let me just tell you something. A lot of people can tell you about, you know, I've had an experience with Jesus. I've had experiences with Jesus. You know the thing about experience with Jesus? It, it, it comes and goes. Oh, yeah. It's subjective. I had an experience with Jesus. Boy, it happened at Beach Retreat. It happened on a mountain. It happened in church. It happened in Sunday school. It happened right around. I had an experience with Jesus. That's all great. I've had a lot of experience with Jesus. Many of you have. But I can tell you something. That's not enough. Because an experience of Jesus is subjective. You can't debate with me about my experience with Jesus. I can't debate with you. But I'll tell you what, when the storms come, you'd better have more than just a subjective number of experience with Jesus. You'd better have the fact of Jesus. You see, facts are objective. We'd better have the life of Jesus and his teaching, which we're able to follow when we're in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we better understand the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are facts. That's objectivity. And on those facts, we have experiences, and our experiences lead to facts. And I'll tell you, our young people, when they go to college, they go, oh, I had an experience with Jesus. No, they'd better have the facts of Jesus or they'll be shredded in that woke environment, or you're being shredded in your woke environment. Know the difference between subjectivity and objectivity? Let me see if I can find an illustration. Let me see. To look around for one. Stand up, please, my brother. This tie, can you see it, is basically Red. It's not quite as red as mine. Maybe it's the same tire. Where'd you get that tire? <laughs> Everybody agree that red is enough? Thank you very much. Is that okay? It's got a little, it's red. Now I'm going to take that as an objective truth. Nobody doubts that this tie is primarily red. Do you? Anybody want to debate that now? Speak now, if ever hold your peace. It's red, okay? That's objective truth, okay? Now, I want to go down and ask somebody else a question. That's objective truth, right? You can't hardly debate. That means that light reflects off this particular material in this area as red. Okay, not too fast anybody, am I? Okay, that's objective truth. Now I want to tell you about subjective truth. Let's move down and ask some questions. What's your favorite ice cream? Bluebell vanilla. Let's just take vanilla. Bluebell is subjective. I agree with you, but vanilla. Mine is strawberry. That's subjective. He's wrong, I'm right. No, I'm right, he's wrong. No, that's subjective. Red is objective. Now, you have to understand this truth. We're going to get into postmodernism sooner or later, and I'm going to explain what that means. It's relative to this, but we want to get a little nap before breakfast in the morning. So, when you say, I've had an experience or experience with Jesus, that's fine. That's subjective. But that's feeling, and they come and go, right? But man, when you build it on the rock, objective truth, the teaching, the life, 
the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. You can't argue that red is red. You can debate ice cream. So on that rock, said Jesus, on your profession of faith and to who I am and what I'm about, that is where your salvation stands. And ladies and gentlemen, you can call yourself Christian till you're blue in the face. Say, I had an experience with Jesus. I walked down the aisle. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I had a membership this. I taught a class. Doesn't mean a different in the world. That is words. That is subjectivity. Unless your experience of Jesus is based upon objective truth. And that will be there forever and is undebatable. And if you run around and say, boy, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. Oh, that's like saying, I love to swim and I got a pool in my backyard, and, but I never, never jump in. Man, I love to go to the mountains and I have many chances to go, but you know, I just hardly ever go. Does that make sense to anybody? Does that, that ring true? That's hearing and professing. That's subjectivity, but objectivity is, man, that's just where I want to be and to whom I want to belong. Built on the rock, solid rock, which is Jesus Christ. That's what has to be in a marriage and a family if it is not only to survive, but it is to thrive and it is to sing. So, a family built on sand, slammed, slammed, crumbles. A family built on rock, slammed, stands. What's the difference? The foundation. The foundation. Over 80 times in the Bible, the word foundation is mentioned over 80 times. And Jesus says, it's the foundation. Is it sand or rock? I go to your house, your home, one room, 700 rooms. Doesn't make any difference. When I go in, I look at the decor and I look at, you know, just casually how you live and it's comfortable and it's fine. I don't, you don't go in and say, I want to show you my foundation. <laughs> my house, look at here. But what's the most important thing? It's the unseen foundation, ladies and gentlemen. And we don't notice we have a foundation until cracks begin to come. Maybe a fissure begins to come. And somehow the house begins to tilt a little bit. You say, my goodness, I have foundational problems. What's the foundation? The genuine foundation of your life and your family and who you are and who I am. The leaning tower of Pisa, not p pizza. <laughs> the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it, it had been erected way back and finished in about 1300, and it already began to lean back then. Why? The word Pisa means marsh. It was built on marshy land, and the foundation only 10 feet down. It's 179 feet high. It began to lean. It was leaning until... Fairly recently, a few years ago, they went in and reestablished the foundation or it would have fallen down. It would have fallen down. 
A lot of people need not just to hear what Christ is saying to us today in this woke culture. We need to awaken and check our foundation, our faithfulness, our discipline, our walk, our ABC Christianity that is based certainly on experience with Jesus. Don't misunderstand that, but it based on the fact of Jesus. That's objective truth. On objective truth, we can have wonderful, emotional, life-changing experiences. It's the foundation. I haven't told this story to maybe a handful of people, but almost 19 years has gone by. I want to tell you how important a foundation is, not only in a family, but in a business or a corporation. I knew Ken Lay. CEO of Enron, at one time the seventh largest corporation in the world. Let me say up front, to my knowledge, Enron or Ken Lay never gave any money to this church or to me. I have to say that. Some of you would know that. I'm just going to say that as a, as a presupposition what I'm going to tell you. I knew Ken because of family and employees in the church. I knew him primarily when the bottom fell out in Houston, all these hurricanes that would come, all the SOS things would come. Enron led and was the example of charity giving personally and corporate in every kind of crisis, every kind of nonprofit in this city for a long time. I know that. That's true. He set the pace for Exxon and all the rest of them. I know that. So I knew Ken through that because our church, as you know, has always rolled up our sleeves and cleaned houses and done whatever it takes to love the people when the bottom had fallen out of their life, right? That's just who we are, folks. We've always been there with our money and with our sweat. So Enron had imploded. I've read the book. I didn't know a lot about their business. I knew they were moving from tangible assets to some kind of paper assets. They advertised they had hired the best and the brightest, and I think you see evidence of that in some areas. But all of a sudden, there was a wake-up one day. They owed over $30 billion. Their stockholders thought they were booming, but in actuality, they were totally bankrupt and failing and going out of business. So in almost zigzag lightning time, the whole house of cards came down. Zip, boom. The sign on the building was sold, auction was sold, the goods were sold. All of a sudden, there's this magnificent building in Houston and other entities around the world, literally, India, China, you name it. It was all gone. The, the thesis was that the stockholders did not know the condition. This is before all the trials were held and sentences were pronounced. But at that moment when the building was virtually empty and stripped, I got a call from Ken Lay. He asked me to come up there at, I don't know, like 10 o'clock at night. I drove up there, went to the elevator, and as far as I know, there was not a living soul in that building except security guards and Mr. Lay. I got on the elevator, I went up to his office. He was seated at his desk alone, nobody there. I walked in, lights were very dim. It was very, 
I don't know if any light were on except the light on his desk. I greeted him, sat down, we talked a little bit, and he said, Pastor, and I was not his pastor, but said, I want to show you something. So he reached in the desk, and he pulled out the mission statement of Enron. And he read it to me, and I read it, and I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not a scholar on the mission statement of a corporation, but I challenge anyone to write one better than the mission statement they had as to how Enron was to work, operate, perform for people, for the public, for their employees. It was a magnificent statement of how a corporation ought to operate in this world. I couldn't improve on it. Maybe some of you could. I couldn't. It was wonderful. And after he read it, and I read it in that darkened room, he said, this is the foundation upon which this corporation was built. Some of the conversation was private. We knelt and prayed in tears. I walked out, left him in that semi-darkened room alone. The elephant in the room, you already know what it is. The question that was not asked, what happened to Enron? Very simple, there was a statement of foundation that was not lived up to was not applied, was not reminded people of, was not hired of. They lost their foundation. And that can happen in a family. It can happen in one of the most powerful corporations in the world. And it can happen anytime, anywhere. It is the foundation, ladies and gentlemen, that we have to remember is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. If anything, it's to stand in the realm of the family. It was 9.41 a.m. in Hawaii, and a Go airliner, little commuter airline there in the islands, was flying from Honolulu to Hilo on the big island. The airliner was full of families, honeymooners, commuters, joyful spirit early in the morning, going to the big island, my goodness clear skies, but as they, it was about a 44-minute flight, but as they got toward Hilo, a father on the plane with his wife and his children on vacation, they noticed the plane continued to fly, altitude about 21, 22,000 feet, and went right over the airport, and he noticed, and he said, you know, that's weird. They're just continuing to go. There's no weather, but they're just continuing to fly out to sea. And he noticed that. His last name was Lenning. He began to question some things. And what he did not know, for 17 minutes, air traffic controllers had been trying to get communication with the two pilots of the plane, and they'd had no response. The plane had fuel to fly only 90 miles. 
and they just flew right over the airport. They were heading out into the Pacific Ocean, soon being unable to turn back. And they kept trying to contact him and contact him. I don't know if the flight attendants through Mr. Lenin began to knock on the door. Finally, they heard from the pilots because they had both gone to sleep, dead asleep. Fortunately, they awakened and they turned around and they put all the other airplanes going to Maui and the big island to the side because they got back with just enough fuel to come and land the plane safely. I want to ask everybody a very personal question. Everybody. Who's piloting your family? The culture, the schools, their friends? Let me tell you something, folks. The father in the pilot seat, the mother in the co-pilot seat, and they can exchange feet. I'm going to tell you, if we're going to survive in this generation, we better wake up. Christ has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. Dear Heavenly Father, awaken me, awaken all of us that we may speak your word, your truth into power. And Lord, we've all said we're tired of stooping. We want to stand and most of us stood, but Father, may we not just stand in church, but may we stand wherever we go with humility, crying out for a revival in our families, for faithfulness to you, O oh Lord, and faithfulness to your church, so that a fire will take place, a fire that will never go out. For well, this is our prayer in Jesus' name.